diving into Principles Part 4. Past three weeks, we have talked about the first three of five guiding principles from which we'll grow vision for this church family. We are not even remotely pretending to be the greatest, biggest, best, or first at anything. But we do want to be committed to the vision that God gives us. If we're committed to what God gives us, vision will spring out of that. Conventional wisdom is very different. It says in church planting, you develop a very tightly orchestrated vision, and then you roll that out to people. But conventional wisdom gets conventional results, and honestly, I'm kind of hoping for more. And when I say results, I don't mean bigger crowds. I just really want to hear what the Lord is saying to us because that's all we're accountable for. When a sense of vision develops organically based on principles, we become a lot less competitive regarding the church down the street because we're not held accountable to what God has called them to be. We're held accountable to what the Lord has called us to be. And as a pastor, let me tell you that competition between pastors is ridiculous. And it is huge. But the reason it's huge is because pastors are looking at things that other people are called to do, and they're feeling guilty or feeling bad for not fulfilling that guy's calling as well as they are. We are not called to be what somebody else is. We are called to be what the Lord will speak to us. And that's going to come out of the principles that we're going to talk about and have been talking about lately. Other churches have other emphasis, and we bless them. We are going to be who the Lord's called us to be. These are the things we believe. They're not to describe everything that we're going to do. We're going to do a lot more than we're going to talk about, but all of the things we're going to do are going to come out of these five principles. So the past five weeks, I've shared a couple of sentences on each one, or past three weeks. We're going to shorten that up a little bit so the recap doesn't get so long, but we're going to turn it into a bit of a game or the bridge wheel of fortune. Okay, so to a little bit of this is actually a little uh, vulnerable because it actually uh, is a reflection on how clear I've been if you've learned anything. Uh, but a belief in the what? Anybody? Oh, come on. Power. Belief in the power of the gospel to transform people's lives. Yes, thank you, somebody. Belief in the power of the gospel to transform people's lives. We believe that when you come to Jesus, you can get free. Might take a while, might help, it might happen instantly, but you do not have to live in the mess that you brought to him. It is remarkable what people will put their trust in to fix their issues. Whether it is a fad they saw on TV or a political character on either side, none of those can change your life. Jesus can change your life, and we believe that here. So what we do is going to spring out of that. Second one, let's look at it. The practice of... Sending, good, okay. The idea that we send people out. God sent his son, and his son in turn sent us into the world. Some say it's impractical to send, especially when you're just a little small body here, and you're already sending people out. It's actually disobedient not to send. And failure to send people out will result in stagnation for the bridge. The Jordan River carries 1.3 billion cubic meters of water a year into where it empties into. It is full of life, but it empties into the Dead Sea and instantly everything dies. You would think with that much life pouring into it that something would live. Why does everything die? Because there's no outflow. Water evaporates, salt increases. I am more afraid 
of becoming stagnant than I am afraid of running out what, of what God is providing anyway. And if we fail to send, we grow stagnant. Third one. Oh, we got two blanks. Suddenly we just ratcheted this up a notch. Exercise a vibrant community. There you go. That was, that was worth two points for those of you that are scoring this. Some of you just can't bear the thought of not winning. The exercise of vibrant community, we talked about that last week. We won't dive into that. Today, we're going to talk to the next one. Anybody remember this? Eyes towards the future. We'll expound on that this morning. And then finally, the last one. Close. Rhythm. The rhythm of prayer. We want to talk about prayer in a systemic way where it is a regular part of our life. It is not a crisis response, although there's a time for that, but there is a rhythm to it. We'll talk about that next week. This morning we're going to talk about having eyes to the future or living our lives with the understanding that the future really matters because that's where we're going. I, I love history. I really, I'm a, one of my favorite podcasts is, uh, uh, it's called... Hardcore history. The guy does about four of them a year, and they're five hours long. And it's just incredibly intricate. I just get sucked into them. I love these things. However, I'm not going to live there. We're not going back. We're going forward. Historically and culturally, there are two competing views of time. We think of time as either cyclical or linear. Okay? Cyclical or linear. Some people think that everything repeats. Other people feel that history marches on. Now, at the extreme end of this idea that everything repeats, or the cyclical view of time, you find the belief that the soul lives forever in a sort of a loop. It's called reincarnation. Time goes around and around and around, and so do we. Now, when I say reincarnation, some of you instantly, because we are... Uh, practical Midwesterners who are not given to such nonsense thoughts. You know, you think of people in another world that think about reincarnation, or you think of Shirley MacLaine, those of you that are old enough to remember her. It's, it's just a different weird world. However, there are people who we would relate to culturally who believe in the idea of reincarnation. There's a lot of them. Let me just go back through history a little bit. Henry Ford built the car said, I adopted the theory of reincarnation when I was 26. Religion offered nothing to the point. It's like, I, I looked at religion, I just saw nothing there, so we must be coming back to take another lap. David Lloyd George was the Prime Minister of Britain in 1916 and 1922. He said, the conventional heaven, with its angels and perpetually singing, etc., nearly drove me mad in my youth and made me an atheist for 10 years. My opinion is that we shall be reincarnated. You see a pattern here? Their religion or their view of heaven gave them no view forward, so they immediately went back and said, life must be cyclical. We must go in circles. We must live again. This idea isn't antique and it isn't unique. It's actually held by a lot of people. Napoleon claimed to have been Charlemagne in a previous life. George Patton claimed he was an ancient Roman soldier in a previous life. Sylvester Stallone, Rocky, believed he was killed in the French Revolution. Phil Collins from Genesis believed he fought at the Alamo. Salvador Dali, the artist, believed he was St. John of the Cross. John Lennon 
believed he and Yoko Ono had been the pharaoh and the queen of Egypt at one point. John Lennon also believed he had been Napoleon, which I guess if you do the math meant he was also Charlemagne. What's so interesting to me is anyone who buys into this, for the most part, believes that in a previous life they were someone substantial. Nobody was like a bus driver. Or, you know, nobody was the janitor at their school. Everybody is, was somebody famous. It's like somebody had to be these people. And that all may sound fantastical and just, you know, otherworldly. But among adults age 50 and under today in the United States, nearly 40% of them believe in something closer to reincarnation than a, than a linear view of history. Almost 40%. They may not call it that, but when they talk about life, how they talk about life is in a cyclical way. Bruce Springsteen talks about his uh, deceased saxophone player, Clarence Clemens. He says, I believe that in a previous life, Clarence and I worked alongside each other in the fields. Now, the problem with all of that, of course, is that it directly counter contradicts Scripture. Like, you can believe that, but you can't believe that in the Bible at the same time. Because Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 says, And just as is it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the idea of living again is real, but you live that life as the same person you are today. And you only live that life once the one who is beaten death returns. You are stuck with you. Okay? The person you are right now, you will be for eternity. You'll have a glorified body, but your being will be the being that stands before the Lord forever. You'll be the same person you are today, but you'll actually be unencumbered in fellowship with the Lord. He doesn't want you to be somebody else. He wants to spend eternity with you. 1 Corinthians 15, 51-55. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Get this. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Some of you, we just prayed for healing. The body that you're struggling with will put on perfection. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality... Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? How many of you have ever heard that quoted at a funeral? Death, where is your sting? And you're looking around going, This stings! Like, no, it stings! I can pretend, but this stings! It says, at this point, that becomes true. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? The resurrection of our bodies and the redemption of our souls is actually, when you think about it, more fantastic, more poetic, more beautiful, more biblical, and more true than the idea of reincarnation or cyclical life. And while the death is not a final for a believer, we are not condemned to take another lap as, an, in, as another person or as an animal or reincarnated as something else. History is not circular or cyclical history is linear 
and it is victorious. That's not to say that things don't repeat themselves because we're only so creative. We end up doing the same things over and over again. We can't even point to original mistakes. But we're not stuck in an endless loop. If time were circular, we could afford to be fascinated with ourselves. Because it would be about us. But reincarnation or cyclical time tends to fit that selfish mindset about it all being about us. Time as we know it has a beginning though and it is going somewhere. Don't think of it as a circle. Don't even think of it as a segment, those of you that remember anything from geometry. Think of it as a ray. It started and it just goes. Okay? Now on that ray that we remember from geometry, the most important part of that ray, where's it going? Where does this thing end up? Because our fascination, wherever we are on the line, is replaced with the idea of what's next. This week, Josiah, Lima, and Jacqueline went to D.C. to join the internship. And uh, they spent a night in Tennessee with some friends, then went to New Jersey. I'm not really sure about all this route. But from New Jersey, they took a train, and they took the train into D.C. Took some photos. They were at Penn Station. When they got to Penn Station, what do you imagine the most important thing they were concerned about with? What color train they got on? What the seats were made of? What the conductors were? No, they were concerned, where is this train going? Because I'm getting on this train, and wherever it's going, I'm going to be. It's important to think about where the train of history is going. The primary factor concerning and shaping our lives should be the future and where the train is going. Not to say that we don't live in the moment or have pleasures in this life. We absolutely do. But we actually have more pleasure in this life knowing we will live as who we are forever. 1 John 2.17 says, The world is passing away along with its desires. Why? Because time is linear. So the world is passing away. It's going on. But whoever does the will of God, whoever's obedient, whoever leans into a walk with him, will live forever. Some of you are going, why does this matter? Because some of you walked into the room this morning under great stress and great pressure. You feel economic pressure. You feel the pressure of people's expectations. You feel the pressure of not have accomplished everything that you wanted to accomplish in your life. And you're looking at others and going, I, I wish I could have done that. And I did. You're under great pressure. Some of you will not believe this, but you're, it's going to echo in your mind. 99% of what you feel pressure about right now is temporary. It really is. Is it three years? Is it five years? Is it ten years? I don't know. But it's temporary. The bus is going somewhere. That doesn't mean that it doesn't cause us discomfort or pain, but it is not going to be our forever. The things that are pressuring you are not at the end of that ray. You will forever be characterized by an up-close encounter of the God of the universe. And in that moment, when somebody asks you, do you remember what was bothering you in 2023? You're going to go, 2023 what? Like, in, in perspective, none of this is going to matter at the end of the ray. Knowing that is true changes our lives and even how we respond to current pressures because some of those pressures do need a response. You can't just look at the troubles of life and say, 
You're not going to be here forever. Well, yeah, but I'm your child and I'm here now. You know, I mean, you have to face them. You have to wrestle with them. But they're not going to haunt you forever. Now, some of you think, all this fascination with the life to come makes people useless. Because they're too heavenly minded to be any what? To be any earthly good. You've heard that? Too heavenly minded. No, actually... The more heavenly-minded and eternity-aware that you become, the more good you actually become on the earth because you realize that what we're doing on this, in this space and to each other and to our families matters forever. Suddenly, your awareness of that makes this real. Unbelievers who never ponder eternity are less connected to reality than believers are. I think it was Timothy Leary in the 60s who told an entire generation, turn on, tune in, and drop out of their current set of problems. That produced a generation not heavenly-minded enough to be of any earthly good. We will develop vision and action points for the bridge with the understanding that eternity matters and we keep an eye towards the future, that eternity is coming, that the Bible gives way more information about it than we might think at first glance, and that that information should deeply affect how we live our lives in linear time because we have some idea of where the bus is going. Some of you go, yeah, I had this cousin who got way into the end times and he got really weird. Yeah, part of that was genetics. Like that cousin would have been weird about something, right? Like the people who get into the end times and get weird, if it weren't the end times, it would be something else. It doesn't make you weird to realize that time is going somewhere and you can prepare yourself for it. Discussion, study, and declaring the truth of the end times as we know it should be a normal part of the Christian experience. Jesus taught that there would be a generation that lived with the general understanding that his return was drawing near. Not just an acknowledgement that he was coming, but an expectation that he was coming perhaps in their lifetime. Now, we don't know that yet, but we need to live with an awareness of what that generation was looking for, or we might find ourselves a part of that generation and completely unaware of it. There's a descriptive phrase that Jesus uses when he talks about people who are believers who are alive at the end of the age but are unprepared because they hadn't planned ahead. He calls them foolish virgins. He speaks of these virgins as waiting for their bridegroom and some of them were so foolish they brought lamps and no oil. They're like, we've got the form but we don't have anything that's actually consumable. We haven't made any sacrifice. Nothing burning there. We just have this structure. We have the religion. We've got the habits. We have no life. And as the waiting drew longer than they expected, in Matthew 25, 5 through 8, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here comes the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And all of those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. They polished their format. They worked on their church structure. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. There's a rude awakening coming to many in the church who are saved but unprepared to live in the hour to come. 
And they will discover they don't have the personal history, they don't have the depth, they don't have the anointing, they don't have the oil that was available earlier in life to carry them through the dark of night. And in that moment, they're going to look to others and say, can I have some of what you've got? And you can't give it away and you can only get it for yourself. We have seen that on a minuscule scale over the past three years. As our culture has gone through a minor bump and people encountered this crisis of faith and where is God? And it was like on a, it was a level two on a scale of one to a hundred. A hundred is coming. And when it comes, there will be people who have professed faith in Jesus and I believe actually are saved, but yet are unprepared to, to deal with the struggle because they have not done the work to grow deep in God when it was easy to have it for when it's hard. So how, how did we get here? How did we end up with a vast section of the body of Christ living without considering the etern <coughs> eternal ramifications of their decisions? I need something. <clears throat> I'm going to live. Just touch and go there for a minute. How did we end up with a, with a huge chunk? And most of you know tons of Christians that would say, I love Jesus, I don't want to talk about the end times. I don't want to touch it. I don't even want to think about it. How did, we, how did we end up with the body of Christ like that? I think a lot of it rests on how we have regarded eschatology or the study of the end times, how we've looked at it, okay? It's best illustrated probably in Matthew 24. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 24. How many of you have children or know someone who has selective hearing? Right? You know this. Some of you uncomfortably looked at each other when I said that. Okay. No, you know what I'm talking about. You say to your kids, all right, if you clean your room, you clean out the van, wash the dog, pick up all the shoes in the foyer, we'll have ice cream. What does your child hear? Ice cream. That's all they hear. Ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. Thank you, Paige. None of these people thought of this. Only Paige. <laughs> Only Paige. Not saying she's the favorite, but she is now. Thank you. She was curious about how this sermon ended. She didn't want me to die. Thank you. <clears throat> Ice cream. That's all they hear. Selective hearing, okay? We have the biggest demonstration of ice cream selective hearing in the body of Christ in the, uh, Matthew 24. And that's selective hearing. I mean, it's not a sin. It's just that we hear what we want to hear. In Matthew 24, Jesus is teaching, and he says a bunch of stuff. And for the most part, the body of Christ cherry-picks one verse and builds their theology around one verse in the whole thing. Here's how it works. He teaches about his return, and the one verse that gets quoted in 41 verses of him speaking here about the end times, the one verse that gets quoted is uh, verse 36. But concerning the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Concerning that day, he is saying all of this in response to a question at the beginning of the chapter. The beginning of the chapter, the disciples say, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And he talks for 41 verses. And out of the 41 verses, the one that everybody knows is nobody will know the day or hour. 41 verses and that's what you got out of that? It's in there, but there's context, okay? 
I said, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, ice cream, and all you got is ice cream? He sits down at the beginning of this chapter, and he begins to teach in great detail about his coming and the end of the age. Put yourself in the disciples' seat for a second. What are the disciples, what do they think they're hearing? They think that they are hearing what is about to happen, like, to them in real time. Yeah, next week. Like, they don't have a grid for 2,000 years of human history to follow. And nor, nor could they. So they're thinking, this is going to happen pretty quick. Take into account again, this is not a short conversation. This is the, the written record of what he says is 41 verses long. It's probably the cliff notes. He might have said more. And out of that discourse, we pull out verse 36, no man knows the day or hour, and that's all we hear. And then we extrapolate that into an excuse to forget the volume of Old Testament prophecies about it, the multiple times Jesus taught about it, the hunger of the New Testament for the return of the Lord, the entire battle plan of the book of Revelation from chapter 6 on to the end. We extrapolate that one verse into minimizing any thought about the end times other than that. And as soon as that weird cousin starts talking about that at the family reunion, somebody shuts him down with no one knows the day or hour. If all Jesus said was no man knows the day or the hour, we would surrender this principle of having eyes towards the future. Because no man knows the day or hour. You know, it's like, what would be the point? You might as well live only for today because what's coming is going to hit us like a freight train. And we won't know until it gets there. But Jesus said a lot more in Matthew 24. In fact, immediately before Jesus tells them, that they will not know the day or the hour. He says something with a very different emphasis, indicating that the generation that sees the return of the Lord will know they're living in that day. That when the time comes, the generation that is alive will be aware of it. I am sorry to dismantle your left-behind fantasies. Where out of the blue, the rebellious teenager walks into his godly father's bathroom and finds the razor buzzing in the sink because dad is gone, okay? No one had any idea. That's not how it plays out in Scripture. We actually have some ramp up, and the generation who sees him return will know it. Which leads to the question, okay, so what's a generation? Like, you know, let's, get, let's put a time on this. Let's get a date on this. How long is a generation? In our culture, we relabel generations more and more quickly, right? There were the boomers. Boomers had about a 20 or 30 year spread. Then Gen Xers had about 20 years. You had a 20 year window when you were a Gen Xer. Millennials, about a 15 year window before we changed that to Gen Z. Gen Z had about a 10-year window. Now they're talking about Generation Alpha, which will be shorter than that. The rapid distinction of generations is kind of a, a mix, a fabrication of, a mix of truth and fabrication. Because every few years, young people want to deeply be distinct from those who are older than them. This is mostly about marketing, just to be honest. Because people want to sell something to a new group of people that convinces them they were different than the earlier group of people. 
Now, there are differences, and technology has increased that. I'm not saying there's nothing to it, but a lot of it is about getting you to buy new tennis shoes. That's mostly what those generation breakdowns are about. A generation is not a moment. It's not even a 10-year window. Biblically, when they talk about a generation in this context, it could be up to 100 years. Jesus said there would be some awareness near the time of his coming that, oh, these days are not like those days. We are further down the timeline than we were. Things are different now. There's going to be an awareness of this. How many of you are familiar with uh, the word zeitgeist? You've heard it? You, you, know, you understand what it's talking about? The word zeitgeist. It's a German word, which listening to it, it would have to be. Right? Zeitgeist. What sounds more German than that? It's a German word that is a mashup of time and spirit. The zeitgeist is the spirit of the times. It's the overarching narrative, the story that the people of that day tell about themselves and that they believe in what motivates them. The zeitgeist in the 20s, 30s, and 40s in Germany was one of world domination. It was like in the air, like a cloud. It's why the Germans marched across Europe twice over the course of a couple decades after being defeated. It was just, it was, they couldn't get away from it. It was what they felt called to do. The zeitgeist of the 60s in America was one of rebellion from authority. It wasn't caused by rock and roll. It produced rock and roll. In the 1960s, in response to the riots in Los Angeles, Stephen Stills sat down with a pen and he wrote the words, Something's happening here, and what it is ain't exactly clear. And it became clearer to people over time. They were looking to the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age that was one of rebellion towards authority. The spirit and the momentum of culture in a specific place and time is real. You can even look back at your life at times where there was a clear feeling in the air. Something was happening. Even though Jesus said you could not know the day or the hour, he pointed, pointed towards a generation of people which would understand the zeitgeist that would declare his return. Oh, something is up. This is different than that. In fact, in the immediate passage, before he says that we would not know the day or the hour, he tells us that those who are alive will understand that his return is near. Matthew 24, 32. From the fig tree learns its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know summer is near. In other words, the natural world ripens. It has a life cycle. You can tell when something's about to happen. I would tell you we are living in a world that is closer to the return of Jesus than the world our parents grew up in. That's not just spiritual talk. That's just logical just observational. We can look at the world we live in and what, are we in that generation or not? I do not know. But I believe the generation that is in that generation at some point will know. But we say things that he described and we're going, yeah, I can see that. Is this that? I don't know, but this is like that. Earlier in this chapter, he talks about a time of wars, rumors of wars. And of the 40-some verses that people ignore because they want to reiterate that we don't know the day or hour, he talks about these things. 
And immediately people respond, well, you know, there have always been wars. And that's, that's actually true. New York Times did a study in the last 3,400 years. They declared a war or defined a war as a conflict that claimed 1,000 lives. You get 750 lives, that's not a war. Okay, you gotta, if it claims 1,000 lives, it's a war. By that measure, we have only had 268 years of peace in the last 3,400 years. 8% of recorded history has been peaceful by their, by their declaration. So wars, there have always been wars. Not a new development, but rumors of wars are operating at a rate we could have never imagined 30 years ago. Turn the Wayback Machine back to like 800 A.D. Do you think that the Vikings started sacking northern England and worried the people in France? They didn't even know what was going on. They were running rampant over England. The people of France had no understanding of it until about the mid-800s when they sailed up the river to Paris and all the Frenchmen said, funny hats. They sailed 115 ships up. They didn't know who the Vikings were at that point. The Vikings laid siege to the city of Paris. King Charles the Bald, the jokes write themselves. King Charles the Bald sent out his first division of ships into the river. The Vikings promptly sunk all of them. Captured 115 of the French sailors, took them to an island within sight of Paris, with all of Paris looking over the wall, hung all of them. Should be noted that Charles the Bald only had two divisions. He suddenly became very flexible. They negotiated a truce. All this is going on. People of Eastern Europe don't even know that Vikings exist. They're out there farming and I mean, a couple hundred miles away. We didn't have this sense of what is going on all over the world. Fast forward to our day and age, a balloon appears above Montana... And we not only know where it came from, we have ideas on what to do with it and questions on why they didn't. <laughs> and none of us are actually believing what we're talking You know, it's like rumors spin at an age that it never has been like this before. Never has been like this before. There has never been a time in history where information flowed so freely or rumors of war spread around the world like wildfire. Jesus said rumors of war will mark the zeitgeist of the generation that is alive when he returns. Are we that? I don't know, but we're closer to that than our parents were, and it looks a lot more like what he's describing than what our parents lived. He also spoke of great upheaval for his followers. Matthew 24, 9 through 11. Again, this is all part of these 40 verses that we only tie our hat to that one. No man knows the day or hour. He also said this. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. The zeitgeist of the, the last generation, when he returns, will contain significant trouble for believers, even to the point of many of them falling away where they betray and hate one another. I'm not saying that this season is that season, but this season looks more like that season than that season did. Open Doors is a group that studies persecution around the world in a systemic way. 
and when I say persecution, I don't mean Starbucks doesn't say Merry Christmas, okay? I mean legitimate persecution. 360 million people on the earth live in countries where persecution of Christians is significant. By significant, I mean often punishable by death. 360 million people. They have 5,600 documented cases of martyrdom for faith last year. 5,600 people put to death, not made uncomfortable, not lost their jobs, not gone hungry, were put to death for their faith. Another 10,000 were kidnapped and held against their will last year. Our brothers and sisters in North Korea and Afghanistan are losing their lives for a scrap of scripture they've hidden underneath their mattress. By the way, North Korea has been number one for years in systemic persecution of Christians. In the last year, they have been replaced by Afghanistan, where persecution skyrocketed in conjunction with our high-speed pullout of our military. I was reading in recent weeks that U.S. armament is now showing up in terrorist groups in remote northern India. Where did they get it? When we pulled out of Afghanistan. I think, I guess we assumed the Taliban would just take those weapons and beat them into plowshares or something. But they didn't. This is where the train is headed. And while we aren't in physical danger in this country, we see a rise of betrayal and bitterness towards one another even within the church. And entire words have become toxic. Remember when evangelical was a positive word? Now on Twitter, it's like a curse word. If you're on social media, the fastest way to get a following is to talk publicly about how bitter you are about your church experience. Because no story flies across the internet like the accusation of the brethren and the zeitgeist of the age that is coming upon us is one where that is going to be prevalent. Wars, rumors of wars, persecution, upheaval and hatred towards one another. We may not be the generation, but we're more like the generation that Jesus described than any generation who's lived so far. I have a hunch the apostles would look at us and go, that's not it. What must it be? Some of you are going, Randy? You are freaking me out at a greater rate than you normally do. Don't let this rattle you. Let it shape your life. Don't let it make you panic. Let it force you to get clear. Let it pressure you to become intentional with your life so that you make life decisions aware that we live in a situation that will have ramifications for an eternity. 2 Thessalonians 2. 1 through 3. Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, he said, now in light of the fact that he's coming back, in light of the fact of these 40 verses that we pull the one out of, in light of the fact there'll be wars, rumors of wars, and people will turn on one, in light of all of this, we ask you, brothers, not to be shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until rebellion comes first. When it's coming, don't freak out. Get intentional. Don't get panicky. Paul lived with the idea that there would be warning signs that they could know. 
So to that future generation, what did Jesus say in Matthew 23 or 4? Verses 33 and 34, he said, See also, when you see these things, that I'm telling you that I've spent 40 verses telling you that I'm, you're going to see, when you see these things, you know the end is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, a generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Some people incorrectly interpret this scripture as if he is speaking to the apostles. And they say, none of this happened and the apostles all died. He's not speaking to the apostles there. He's speaking to that hypothetical generation that will be alive at his return. This is why we make our decision and develop a church body with an eye to the future. Jesus commanded it, and we are recognizing the quick development of world, a worldwide zeitgeist that seems to be similar to what he is describing. And if this isn't it, then this is leading to it. The people in this room may not see the Lord's return in our lifetime. But what if we're raising the generation that does? What's our responsibility there? Are our children going to end up to be 30 and 40 years old? We've passed on and they look at us and go, look at our headstone and go, why did you not prepare us? Why did you not find a church somewhere that at least talked about this? Why did you not form a body with people and support one another and search the scriptures beyond that one verse that made everybody feel better? Nobody knows the day or hour. If it's not us, what if it's our children? Is it worth diving into this and getting some sort of understanding about it? I think it is. I'm going to ask you if the worship team would come up. Just real quick, I want to close with a couple of questions that people have when we start talking about this. There are always people who say, you know, focusing on eschatology disconnects us from today. I wouldn't call it focusing or fixating. I would call it living with awareness. If we think Jesus is coming back, it will compel us to lead better Christian lives than otherwise. I, I don't think it actually makes us disconnected at all. Some people will say, well, nobody can know everything, so why try? That is a really foolish approach to anything. You know, when your car breaks down, you just light it a fire and go buy another one? Well, I don't know how the whole thing works. No, but you know how some things work, okay? There are some things you can do. You can Partial understanding is better than no understanding. Some people say, well, every generation thought they were the one. That's actually bad history. It's not true. You know, the only two generations where there's really been a heightened fixation, if you want to call it that, on eschatology would have been the generation of the apostles and the one you're in right now. The bulk of church history, they really never thought that much about it. Or they developed a plan based on that one verse. Nobody knows the day or hour. That verse is true. But the verse that says the generation that sees his return will be aware of its impending return, that passage is true as well. Stand with me if you would. I want to close with just a minute of worship as we turn our heart towards the God of all eternity who is the destination that we're going for, where the bus is going. So Father, we take these moments 
We commit our hearts to you. We look towards you. We lift our voices to you. We pray that you would fashion us and do a work in us, that we would not be foolish virgins, but that we would have oil, enough for our families, that we would have depth in God. We would have expectation. In Jesus' name. Father, because history is going somewhere, 
we will live with our eyes towards the future. Making our decisions, making our plans as people who will live with the ramifications of those forever before the throne. We ask for heightened sensitivity to what you're doing on the earth, God. Thank you for these 40 verses describing that which is to come. Thank you for the warning of what it means to get to the end of the age and not have oil of our own. So we ask that you would cultivate a hunger in this church family for preparing for eternity. Whether we meet it in this lifetime or our children or five generations down the road, let them say we were better prepared because that group of people took this seriously. We love you, Jesus. You are worthy of it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Go live lives that matter this week. Amen. Yeah.